How did we get to be here, folks? I'll tell you how. It's uh, Monday afternoon. Let's call it evening, 6 p.m. Still very under the weather, unfortunately, uh, but I finally have a diagnosis. Um, instead of strep throat or COVID-19, what I'm dealing with are nasal polyps as a result of really bad allergies. Uh, I've been trying to uh, deny my entire life that I suffer from seasonal allergies, but um, Los Angeles, if you're not in the area in the last month or so, has been experiencing a shocking amount of rain and bad weather, and it's making pollen fly around, and so uh, I, it's making me, so I uh, have post-nasal drip due to nasal polyps, and then I can't swallow without uh, being in excruciating pain. But I still showed up to do this, goddammit. You're welcome, audience. And I am neglecting everything that I'm supposed to be doing. Homework, housework, creative work, because uh, I wanted to record this podcast. Um, uh, here's what happened. I figured I would take this week off. I got some family coming into town in a couple of days. Got a lot of things to get ready for that. And uh, for the show that we're going to talk about today, I was thinking, okay, so I can't record the podcast anyway because I haven't done the prep on this. I know this show very well, love this show, we're going to talk about it, but I've, there's a documentary involved that I've seen, but I should probably rewatch. Let me do a whole thing. Now, I'm driving home from school. My second class was canceled, so I'm done at... 10, let's call it 10 a.m., driving back to the valley, thinking, you know what I could do is, before I get started with all this, I could just sit down and watch that documentary, and then when I'm ready to do the podcast, I'll feel ready. Um, what happened was, that documentary was not available. So I watched a filmed version of the play that I didn't know existed on YouTube, and that took a long time, and it was emotionally taxing, and then I spent the rest of the day writing and thinking and prepping to talk about Merrily We Roll Along, my favorite musical of all time. It's true. Now, I'm not saying this to be contrarian. I'm not saying this to be interesting. I'm not saying this because it's one of his biggest flops and it's one that non-theater people may or may not have even heard of. I'm not trying to say, I know the B-sides. My favorite is the one you've never heard of. It's just the best one. I'd like to make my case for this over the next, oh, let's call it 90 minutes. I can't uh, predict how long it'll take, but I'm excited to talk about it. It's my favorite. It's always been my favorite. It emerged as my favorite early on. It's great. Before we get into talk of Merrily, we roll along, I do want to address something from last week. I made the shockingly unforgivable omission. I forgot to mention, I talked so much about Angela Lansbury, and I forgot to mention probably the most exciting find in my little half-assed research that I do here on Sondheim and Adderall. I found, folks, the Angela Lansbury exercise video. That's right. She made an exercise video in 1988, and the entire thing is on YouTube. Now, this is 
as of, uh, you know, April of 2023. Maybe you're listening to this far into the future and there's been some copyright claim on it and it's gone. If so, woe to you, woe to us all. But do yourself a favor. It's called Angela Lansbury Positive Moves Full Fitness Video. It's uh, on YouTube right now as we speak. It's uh, about 50 minutes long. She's going to take you through some gentle stretches, some morning stretches, the backstroke, the archer stretch, the cat arch, the baking bread. Now, let's not forget something. Let's remember something. This woman lived to be nearly 100 years old. So she knows what the hell she's doing when it comes to health and fitness. Get on board. Also, it's just charming. It's, it's, it's so heartwarming. She's there in her little garden. She's doing her little exercises. Highly recommended. Angela Lansbury exercise video. Positive moves. It's on YouTube for free. You're welcome. Um, this is a big, uh, big news. I guess it's not big news. It's just big news for me. I promoted this podcast for the first time after five episodes because um, it started to feel silly to not uh, tell people about it. I told my girlfriend and my sister about it, and my sister told my aunt, and uh, those three wonderful women are the three (laughs) reviews on iTunes, and God bless them. They're very supportive. But... um, yeah, I, as crazy as this uh, whole endeavor is, as unhinged as it is, I felt like, uh, why not uh, get it out there? At least with, uh, you know, your meager social media following, see how they feel about it. So if you're here and you're new, um, welcome to Sondheim on Adderall. Please don't expect any level of professionalism or objectivity. This is going to be a giddy blur of madness and um, mania. It's kind of redundant. Madness and mania. Let's talk about this week's show. Merrily we roll along. Big flop on Broadway when it came out. Partially due to some problems in the way it was conceived. There have been uh, newer versions of it. Uh, I I have not seen the original form of it. I don't think it's available. I think when you buy the rights to it now, you get the 1985 revision or perhaps the 1994 revision from La Jolla. So I don't know. I've heard the original cast recording from 81, and uh, it's great. It's a great CD. Let's talk about what went wrong. Let's go through all of that. We're going to go through all the categories and beats that we go through normally with things like this. And um, I'm excited to get started. Let me just do this instead of talking about how excited I am to get started over and over again. Here we go. So people say, people that are Sondheim intelligentsia or theater literati, the party line on this one is that it's Oh, it's beautiful and flawed. And I mentioned this on an earlier episode. I worked with a person who was a musical director for a show I was in that was a Sondheim head. And when Merrily We Roll Along came up, he shook his head and said, a show that will never work. No matter how much they revise it, it'll never work. And a lot of people say this. And I'm here to tell you that's bullshit. 
It's not true, ladies and gentlemen. It's perfect. It works. You just have to be not stupid. And you will enjoy Merrily We Roll Along. I would venture to say that if you're a person who enjoys storytelling, if you're the kind, not the kind of person that says, oh, that was so depressing, that was so emo. I couldn't sit through it, it was so emo. There were no sympathetic characters. If you're a person that likes good things, then maybe you're not a musical theater person. Merrily We Roll Along is a gift. It is uh, a masterpiece, it's a gift. It's a masterpiece in a totally different way that Sweeney Todd was a masterpiece. It's the best one. It has it all. Now, you know, if this, if, if Merrily We Roll Along really just would ne would, will never work, as this person told me, and as people like to say, you would think it would die, right? And they wouldn't just keep on doing it. But people keep on doing it. Like, there's something there. It gets revived all the time. Especially in latter years. For example, you know, by contrast, nobody does Anyone Can Whistle, which is Sondheim's biggest flop. That closed after nine performances in the early or late 60s. And, uh, you know, that... that Nobody's try it's it's not just because it's a Sondheim show and Sondheim's dead or Sondheim as we all revere him now. It's because it's fucking good. It's the best one. They just did it a couple years ago with Harry Potter and uh, King George. Uh, what are their real names? I've never seen a single Harry Potter movie, America. Am I wrong? Should I get on board? <sighs> the, the kid that plays Harry Potter. You you know his name. I would know his name if I Googled it. I'm so sorry. And then King George. He's got the he's the guy from the Mine Hunter. He's also got a name. What are those names? If I thought about it for 15 seconds, I could come up with them, but I can't. So Jonathan Groff, first of all, that's King George. And uh, Harry Potter is the other guy. <laughs> Daniel Radcliffe. Oh my god. I'm so sorry for every... I, I know that feeling of listening to a podcast and yelling at your uh, phone because somebody can't think of something that you know. Lin-Manuel Miranda was in this a few years ago, played Charlie. The documentary, the aforementioned documentary that I was planning to come home and re-watch today because I saw it when it came out, uh, is not streaming anywhere. Why? So this documentary is called The Best Worst Thing That Ever Could Have Happened. It's about the original production of it, which was starring all teenagers in 1981. The original concept of Merrily Roll Along was that it would be all teenagers. The conceit of the show, if you don't know, is that it goes backwards in time. It starts in the late 70s, and it's about a sort of uh, empty, morally bankrupt, but highly successful movie producer who was also a musical composer. <clears throat> And then uh, it goes backwards through his life. Each uh, scene is a few years earlier, and then a few years earlier, a few years earlier. And then it goes back to him starting out with his two friends who he, you know, we've, we've seen them lose touch. And anyway, Merrily Roll Along, check it out. There's, there's really not very many good entry points to this one because it's, at least for the first 20 years of its existence, it was kind of unsung. 
Um, what I ended up watching today instead of that documentary, and I, God, I wish I could have seen it so I could have had more. There's a lot of info in that, and um, there's a lot also in the Zayden book that I referenced for these, the Craig Zayden, Sondheim and Company. It's a pretty actually compelling um, uh, reality show feud uh, type thing with the making of Merrily Roll Along. But there was more actor level stuff in that one because it was interviewing all of the teenage actors as old pe uh, people in their 50s from a couple years ago. What, why, do, why do movies disappear from streaming platforms? What, and then they're not on any of them, even like real obscure ones. And then when that happens, why are there not good Samaritans that upload them all to YouTube? Couldn't find them. Big thank you to whoever put that Angela Lansbury thing on YouTube. But can someone do this with this one so we can all see it? I mean, I'll pay. I would pay to rent it. But if you're not going to offer it, you know, for a rental fee, then can I just have it uh, stream uh, for free on YouTube from the public? Pain in the ass. I know there's some legal reason. Uh, yeah, whatever. Anyway, um, what I ended up seeing was the West End... 2013 production at the Harold Pinter Theater. I can't recommend this as an entry point. I enjoyed watching it, and it had some good things about it. They had some weird American accents. It, it wasn't even that the American accents were bad. The, the, the young lady playing Beth did a southern accent all the way through that was uh, pretty grating and uh, not uh, convincing. And then same thing with Joe. He did a New York guy, but like filtered through the mind of a uh, British guy. The, w the weird thing about this was like everybody was really big. Like it was like Mary and Frank were doing fucking kabuki theater. And they were doing these caricatures of Americans. I didn't even necessarily know it was British until uh, I looked it up partway through because I saw that it was at the Harold Pinter Theater, but I don't know what kind of theaters are in London. I, I, I went there once uh, when I was 19 and I was drunk the whole time. So excuse me for not knowing what the theaters are called in London. Anyway, uh, if you're already uh, a Merrily Rule Along fan, go ahead and check this one out if you haven't seen it. It's, it's got great, great uh, things in it. The, the, the Bobby and Jackie and Jack actually was probably uh, the highlight of it. Like that was the best... Uh, representation of that that I've seen. But uh, you lose some things in the, the weird, uh, maybe British translation and the over-the-topness of it. Now, we've talked about this before, guys. Richard Linklater, director of Slacker and Dazed and Confused and Boyhood, is in the middle of a 20-year project of making Merrily Roll Along into a film with the Boyhood model, but doing it backwards. Meaning he is now with young actors filming the ending parts of the movie slash musical, whatever. And as they age for the next 20 years, uh, he's going to go backwards. And do you get what I'm saying? You understand how this works? Boyhood. Did you see Boyhood? <laughs> he started in like, what, the year 2000? And it went all the way to the year 2015. And you saw that actual kid grow up. And in this case, we're going to see people in their mid to late 20s emerge into their mid to late 40s. Richard Linklater is going to be 80 if he does it for 20 years. So I don't know. I hope he has a like a succession plan. I hope he's got a, that in his will, somebody to finish it if he dies. I hope that he's eating his carrots so he can finish it. I hope I 
decide to eat some carrots so I can see it. Because, geez, this is a long time. This is going to take a while. He started in 2019. It's 2023. We're barely, uh, we're, we're a quarter of the way through. They recast the lead because the guy was a, 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 a woman beater. I, I understand. I, I don't know that guy's name either. But yeah, Ben Platt and Benny, Beanie Feldstein. I know their names. They're still involved. And they've both been widely uh, tarnished since they started work on this. Beanie Feldstein and the funny girl on Broadway and Ben Platt in the film adaptation of Dear Evan Hansen. So, we'll see. We'll see. I'd like to see it, but uh, I don't know. I don't know if I could wait that fucking long. <laughs> Till 2039. That's too much to ask. Is my math right on that? Yeah, 2039. Very good. Okay, so... Merrily We Roll Along is very, very personal for me. I have a pretty, I mean, this show is tied to my life in a lot of ways. And for people that tune into this podcast for the Sondheim factoids and sort of tolerate the uh, Chris uh, waxes nostalgic about what the musical meant to him in his youth, you're not going to like this episode that much. I mean, it's going to be a balance of the two. But uh, this one, whoo, Merrily We Roll Along, baby. It means a lot to me. My first exposure to Merrily We Roll Along was a couple of excerpts from it were on a two-disc set that I had called A Collector's Sondheim, which I have a framed autographed um, poster of that CD cover on my wall here in my office. I'm looking right at it as I speak to you, my listening audience, that my uh, wonderful, thoughtful, supportive partner, Shailene, gave to me for my birthday uh, last November. It's signed by Stephen Sondheim, and on the back, uh, the guy who produced that compilation or or whatever. He wrote a story. Uh, she like corresponded with him and bought this from him and he wrote a whole thing about it. So, so anyway, it's, it's very nice uh, to have. But anyway, so uh, they, they, that CD, first of all, that CD had the disco version of The Ballad of Sweeney Todd, which is a banger. Everybody uh, give that a listen. You, you'll find that on YouTube, certainly. I feel like I found that recently and listened to it. It's great. But it also had It's a Hit and Our Time from Merrily We Roll Along. And those are two really, really good songs. I didn't know anything about the show when I heard those. The sounds of the voices on that, on those songs, was uh, they, 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 they sounded sort of unconventional. Um, kind of like, kind of Muppet-esque. <laughs> like, not like trained singers. <laughs> but uh, I liked it a lot. And then I got the original cast recording and listened to the whole thing. This is one of the better original cast recordings, I think, of a Sondheim show. And especially if you like a full orchestra, I would recommend listening to that one and not the 94 revival recording. That's the more definitive version because it's the most updated version of the show with the newer songs and with the things cut out. But I mean, if you ask me, it sounds a little too cutesy and a little too theatery to my ears. And if you're a theater 
lover and you want a theatery experience when you listen to, al to an album, then maybe that's great. But if you just want to hear songs for the purpose of hearing them, what does that mean, Chris? It's ridiculous. You know, the, the, the original is going to be good. I, I, I think of the 94 one, the Mary especially, is a little too... Ha! Ah, I'm Mary! <laughs> After listening to the album, um, and never... This is interesting. I never... I like to get my hands on the books, the librettos, and read them. I could not find this one. This one was not available in the mid-90s when I was a preteen. And a friend of my parents said that she knew George Firth, the book writer. And I said, hey, can you ask him to uh, give me a copy of the book to merrily roll along? It's not available anywhere. I can't find it. And they're like, sure, young man, I'll ask him. And I was so excited. And the next time that I saw this person, next time they came over to our house, said, yeah, I, I talked to George. He said, you should try Samuel French. Fucking asshole. Of course I tried Samuel French. It wasn't there, George. Anyway, that was obnoxious. It wasn't in print then. And I'm, he, I'm sure he knew that. He's being a smartass. Now, maybe he didn't know that. Maybe he didn't care as much as I cared. I really did care. So, but then I saw it uh, in the year 2000 when I was 16 years old at the West Coast Ensemble. And I'm going to make a bold claim here. Merrily We Roll Along performed at the West Coast Ensemble in the year 2000 in a very modest 99-seat theater is the best experience I've ever had in the theater. It's the best thing I've ever seen. It has not been topped. You know what came close, honestly? Was um, Indecent, which I saw at the Amundsen, like in a way, on a way bigger stage, on a way bigger scale. Not a musical, straight play with a lot of music in it. But, you know, that one felt like it had the power to, uh, you know, it could power a fucking train. It was so, yeah. But but uh, prior to that, Merrily We Roll Along, I, and I think still to this day, it's, I, I've never seen anything like it. And, I, and I'm a guy that's seen a lot of plays. Uh, I'd like to see more now, but when I was young, like I said, my father was a theater critic and I saw them all. He got into them free. He took me to whatever I wanted to see. And sometimes I went along to him with uh, things that were shitty that he was assigned to see. Merrily we roll along. I saw it three times at the West Coast Ensemble. And um, third time I took a, somebody I went to high school with on a date to see it. And the guy that played Charlie was not there. His understudy went on and I was so fucking crushed by that. I was like, oh, Jesus. He was the best one. And then years later I worked with this man, became uh, friends with him. Um, so the guy that played Charlie. So then, you know, I'll talk a little bit later about this. I was in a production of it in 2004 when I was 20 years old and I played the lead in Merrily We Roll Along, my favorite show. And it was a formative experience for me and everybody, uh, my friend Eric directed it. We were all kind of kids and we'll talk about that later. Okay. Anyway, um, then I saw it at the, uh, you know, the in New York in 2019, the Roundabout Theater Company did it. I liked it a lot. I liked the work that they do. I saw them do Into the Woods at the Amundsen in LA a few years prior. They take liberties. They cut it down. They... They added some shit, I feel like, with Beth and her parents. There were, like, extra scenes with Beth and her parents. I'm not sure if that's allowed, but they did it. Um, also, if you've seen the movie Lady Bird, 
this is the show within a show in Lady Bird. The high school musical that they're doing. Merrily we roll along. It's in Lady Bird. That whole movie was like weirdly uncanny because it was people that were my exact age at that exact year that I was that age. So enough about me. Jesus Christ. Let's get on to the themes, the source material. So Merrily we roll along is based on a play from 1934 by Kaufman and Hart. George Kaufman and Moss Hart, which if you don't know them, they were uh, the playwrights from that part of American history, and they were, you know, at the Algonquin Round Table. Uh, I tried to read it as a teenager, couldn't get into it. I did notice that there were a few lines lifted from it, like, uh, know what I'm having? Not much fun. That's direct from, that's like the first line of the show, the play. <laughs> Excuse me. And... Um, I found out today, actually uh, reading about that, that the Mary character that was driven to drink, which, you know, if you're an AA, like I have been for 15 year and a half years, it's, it's kind of a, an, uh, it's not a thing, really, to be driven to drink. I mean, maybe for whatever. That's a side issue. Um, the, the, the idea for the character of Mary, this woman that was driven to drink, uh, was Dorothy Parker. And... Um, you know, you, you guys ever heard of Dorothy Parker? My mother used to travel the globe with a one-woman show about Dorothy Parker. Or she did it in Ireland and maybe the UK uh, somewhere and here in America, a few places. Anyway, um, Dorothy Parker is great and that makes a lot of sense if you know anything about her and you know the character of Mary. Now, the New York Times said retroactively when they were talking about the original source material, they said it suffered from a depression sensibility. It was during the Depression. Uh, the idea that you can't get ahead without selling out. And Harold Prince, who directed the musical, said one reason the original didn't work was that he was an anti-hero. He sold out. He became rich. And an anti-hero in the 1930s is not a sympathetic figure. In 1981, different. I'm not sure I get what that means or if I agree. I don't know, because I was negative two years old in 1981. I mean, you know, I, I understand that greed is good in the 80s. So is that why it's okay to be a sellout asshole, Frank Shepard type? Maybe. This is interesting. Um, you ever see that movie Mank about Herman Mankiewicz who wrote Citizen Kane? Here was a, here, this was his take on the play, Merrily We Roll Along in the 30s. He said, here's this wealthy playwright who has had repeated successes and earned enormous sums of money, had mistresses as well as a family, an expensive townhouse, a luxurious beach house, and a yacht. The problem is, how did the poor son of a bitch get into this jam? Okay, so first of all, this is ironic because this guy wrote Citizen Kane. So, okay, what about, okay. And then also, um, as much as I like Mank, or at least uh, Gary Oldman's version of him. And I, I like that movie a lot. I thought that movie was underrated. Um, this is a frustrating, lazy critique of things. I had a professor that uh, in my fiction class where Catcher in the Rye came up and whatever. Like, I'm not going to sit here and defend Catcher in the Rye. But when I liked it, uh, when I was the right age to like Catcher in the Rye. And this professor said something like, oh, what does he have to complain about? He lives on the Upper West Side. It's kind of pedestrian to not know that money doesn't buy happiness, isn't it? Can we agree on that? 
Can we not have that <laughs> lazy critique of things? And look, I mean, if those are the only stories you're telling, obviously that's a problem. But is there really a finite amount of stories? Is telling the story about an unhappy rich person really detracting from stories told about non-rich people? Maybe. Maybe it is. Or maybe it isn't. Or let's, let's uh, rather than uh, picking and choosing, let's make a world where all of the story, the, the only uh, cure for an imbalance of story is telling way more stories. The danger of a single story. You saw that TED talk with the, yeah. So Merrily We Roll Along is about like, what if you could look really hard at everything in your life that is shitty and then you could look backwards and look at your life in chunks and find all the spots where you made wrong decisions that led you to the shitty life. That's what the fucking musical is about. And Frank, the protagonist, the anti-hero protagonist, he makes a shitty choice in every single scene. It should be called The Increasingly Poor Decisions of Franklin Shepard. You see that show with, uh, with the David Cross and the, yeah. So in finishing the hat, Sondheim says, Coffin and Heart, quote, Sondheim says, Coffin and Hart wanted to write about the deterioration of American idealism and the rise of capitalist greed in what they called the heedless years, which followed the end of World War I until the Depression. We were writing about a generation's idealistic expectations for the future symbolized by the launch of Sputnik and the deterioration into compromise and deceit exemplified by Nixon and Watergate and culminating in the me decade as the 1970s came to be labeled. Thomas Wolfe called the 70s the, the me decade. I don't know if you guys knew that. The guy with the, the hat and the cane. Anyway, so, so you could really argue that it's a musical about the ultimate failure of the boomers. The fucking boomers. And guess who didn't like this musical? The boomers. They didn't want to hear that. So the, these, if, if you're new to this podcast, uh, and why would you be? But I, I never plan this, but I have, there's always like a group of people that I go after and then uh, feel guilty about in each episode. I went after opera people. I've gone after theater people in general. Um, and I've gone after, what about, anyway, I'm a, the boomers. So these motherfuckers, they think that they are the protagonists of history right and all of the storytelling that we've all grown up with and that we've all absorbed you know that was written before we were growing up those of us that came after the boomers they're all boomer stories that are contextualized within the boomer timeline it's, it's the forrest gump thing it's the old ah it's the simple childhood in the 1950s and the bebopalula she's my baby and then uh, oh rebellion in the 60s man and then confusion in the 70s and then oh growing up in the 80s and the wall street and the tie and then the looking back uh, yeah, fondly and wistfully and regretfully in the 90s so I don't think a boomer I don't think boomers collectively want to be shown um, uh, their failure and merely roll along maybe they show that failure I could be wrong about this boomers and thank you for listening
So, uh, I'm gonna stop clicking this pen. That's gotta be, that must be annoying to listen to. Um, anyway, it's a movie, it's a musical about selling out. And it's a musical that doesn't let you off the hook at the, at the end. It's challenging. It's fucking, it's Death of a Salesman. The last song of our time manages to be simultaneously hopeful and devastating. Jesus Christ. <laughs> and it doesn't circle back. That's the thing. So it's we start from a place where everything is fucking burnt to the ground. It's lonely at the top. How did we get to be here? Let's look back. We're looking back and things are sort of, oh, here's where it got fucked up. And here's where it, oh, back a little bit more. Okay, things were a little bit better. And here's how it's getting fucked up. And then by the end, it's like everything's really hopeful, really hopeful. And, but we know what happened. And in the revised version, which I think this is a good revision, it is brave enough not to then circle back to the future. We're going back to the future, to 1970-whatever, and have Frank... Like, the, 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 annoy, the Hollywood ending of Merrily We Roll Along would be our time, everybody's crying, cut to Franklin Shepard on the floor of his party uh, back in the late 70s, and he picks up the phone and calls Charlie and says, what would you say about writing something new? And this musical doesn't do that because that's some Spielberg shit. And uh, that's not what we're doing here. Why am I, why am I angry? Nobody's... Okay. Um, <laughs> Sondheim points out in Finishing the Hat that he had a Franklin Shepard moment in his life. He did Do I Hear a Waltz? For the money! He did it for the Benjamins. And he said, quote, although I didn't pay for it as heavily as Frank does, it taught me a lesson. I never wrote anything that wasn't for love. Good for you, buddy. A little, little sellout moment for him there. And I don't think you're supposed to like Frank, frankly. I think that certainly not in the first act at all. And you don't. I've seen this show done a lot. I think that uh, you're supposed to pity him a little bit. At some point, with that Gussie scene, we're going to talk about it. But I think that the, it does the thing where it's like, okay, here is a detestable person who is the center of this, and we don't have a, uh, you know, anybody going. We don't have a Nick Carraway or a what's his name, Paul Varjak from Breakfast at Tiffany's, to uh, contextualize this. Like, we don't have a hero to be like, look at this guy, look at this Gatsbyan failure. We're, 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 he's in the driver's seat. He is the guy we're following. And I think it makes some people uncomfortable that this really bad guy is the center of our story. But then you see where he came from and it, whatever is, uh, I'm saying something really obvious. Oh my God. So here's a Sondheim quote about this. And, um, Sondheim says, Quote, I happen to like stories about unsympathetic characters because I trust the author to tell me why they interest him. Boom, motherfuckers. I would like to have that grafted onto my eyeballs. Or I have one tattoo that I wish I didn't have and I had it in a blackout. I got it in a blackout uh, the last month of my drinking. I would like this quote tattooed onto my uh, forehead because that's how I feel. That's a little, this is all very over the top, what I'm saying. I don't, I'm not going to get this tattooed anywhere. Suffice to say, I, I agree with the quote that I just said to you out loud. And it's a good response. 
to anyone that says the characters were unsympathetic. Hmm. Okay. Well, I guess that you don't always trust the author, but if you do trust the author, you should trust the author. <laughs> and find, and the, the author will tell you why the character interests him or her, certainly. <coughs> the book of the show is really good. We got George Firth on board again. I feel like Sondheim had book writers that he would uh, enlist for certain projects. And George Firth was his urbane, New York, uh, you know, intelligent, funny uh, apartment dweller people shows he would get Firth on board when it was time to do a costume drama he's going to call up Hugh Wheeler when it's time to do some American history he's going to call his buddy John Weidman he's got uh, collaborators for certain you know, he collaborates them and they collaborate him that's a quote from Merrily Roll Along if you didn't know um, let me give you another quote from Merrily Roll Along um, I have made one mistake in my life but I made it over and over. That was saying yes when I meant no. Forgive me. That's in the first scene. And I stole this. I, I paraphrased this in my own musical. And I felt weird about it. But the reason that I did it was because my musical is highly autobiographical. It's about my parents. My father was a mild-mannered lawyer who got Parkinson's disease and uh, became uh, wild, wildly emotive and full of rage. And uh, so I, I paraphrase that because my dad actually in real life, this was his like favorite line in the show. And he talked about it all the time. Like he really related to that. He had like two crops of children uh, and was a wealthy, uh, made all this wealth as a lawyer. And uh, then he, he started taking dopamine, dopamine medication for his Parkinson's and he wanted revenge. He wanted all of that back he wanted all the times that he said yes when he meant no he wanted uh to uh he wanted retribution and it got a little scary so um i just because it was so such potent I, and i know that like anybody that hears the song that i've written will be like okay well he's ripping off sondheim or george firth and yeah you're right i am sorry <laughs> couldn't think of a better way to say it because i'm not as good as he is uh, Mary's unrequited love for Frank is really the heart of this show. I think the first act has the most to do with Frank and Charlie and what happened. And I mean, it's impossible not to love Charles Kringis all the way through this, Charlie. And the, the, the rest of the show is watching Frank transform backwards into a version of Charlie. Because Charlie is Frank's pure form and the heart of Frank. And Mary's unrequited love for Frank is really the emotional core of it all. Oh, man. The whole thing, um, the scene in the second act where uh, they sing Good Thing Going at the party. And then she's like, let's do it again. And they're like, no, I don't want to. And Frank's like, come on, do it. And Charlie says, you know, I want to know what true greatness is, is knowing when to get off. It's an important moment. And it feels, when I was younger, it felt like a cautionary tale. You know, when I was a preteen and I was like, I felt like I learned something from that. But the fact that Charlie wants, that Charlie doesn't want to do it, but Frank does want to do it, sing the song a second time is important. Um, anyway, 
this is more scattershot than usual even. I, I just I love Merrily We Roll Along so much that uh, I'm just uh, sort of off the rails here talking about it. I want to talk a little bit about the story of the original cast production on Broadway in 1981 because it was a debacle. And it's a great story. And I, I'm going to be doing a lot of close, close quotes, not closed quotes, close quotes from this Craig Zayden book because um, it's fascinating to me. Sondheim almost quit making musicals after this. In fact, I think he did more or less quit. He said he was going to write detective novels and do make puzzles <laughs> because he said that the response from the Broadway community um, was like, uh, he said it was the culmination of what he felt was a growing hostility towards him and Harold Prince, his longtime collaborator. It was the last time they collaborated ever because of the stink of this, I guess. But, um, you know, my humble opinion, I think that when all is said and done, like when you hear the story, it's pretty clear that the failure of the original production of Merrily Roll Along is Harold Prince's fault. I'm sorry. And uh, R.I.P. Harold Prince, he's great. He's a legend. He did amazing things all, uh, you know, with Sondheim and without Sondheim. But uh, his whole idea for this and the way that this went down, it's, it's, it's like Fire Festival. And boy, I love stories like Fire Festival. If they, I watched, I've seen both of the Fire Festival's documentaries multiple times. And if they made 12 more documentaries about the Fire Festival, I'd watch them all. I like uh, debacles, I guess. One of my favorite genres, the, the debacle. But you know what? I bet you it wasn't that bad. Honestly, I'll bet you it's hard to imagine it was that bad. And because the original cast recording is so good and most of that endured and the general plot endured and I, I, I don't see it. I don't see it being as bad as they said. <clears throat> I think it was some bullshit where one person started a rumor that it was bad and then everyone decided it was bad and then it like didn't look expensive and so everybody... This said it was bad. This is my take on it. I wasn't alive in 1981, and if I was, I probably wouldn't have been in New York City, and I certainly <clears throat> not in the window of when those 16 performances were before it got uh, before it closed. So yeah, a big part of this story of it going sour and everything's going south uh, has to do with the choreographer, Ron Field, who died in the late 80s I don't want to speak ill of him I don't know if he has grandchildren or great-grandchildren that um, accidentally are listening to Sondheim on Adderall he sounds like an asshole he sounds like a real pain in the ass and I suppose he was famous because he did the choreography for Cabaret and uh, I maybe I'm an idiot I was surprised that Bob Fosse did not do the choreography for Cabaret he directed the film but uh, yeah, Ron, film, Ron Field <clears throat> did the original choreography for Cabaret. Um, and they brought him on board because Harold Prince and Sondheim said, this is going to be the biggest dancing show of their careers. And so they got a proper uh, choreographer. They should have stuck with Patricia Birch. She seems, she seems cool. Patricia Birch. But they went with Ron Field. Um, some of the teenagers, and I, and I, if if you ever get access to this documentary, that's in the word. This is in their own words. The teenagers that did this, and Sondheim and Prince are also interviewed in that, and Mandy Patinkin is in there being uh, you know, over the top as usual. 
Lonnie Price, who played Charlie, who directed this documentary, by the way, um, he, he, he got involved. Oh, man, I read this when I was a teenager, and it blew my fucking mind. He was a gopher on Pacific Overtures when he was 15 years old. You know what a gopher is? You know, he was like a guy that was like, hey, kid, uh, go down to the deli and get me a Dr. Brown's <laughs> cream soda. <laughs> that was his job. He was a fucking 15-year-old that was going and getting coffee and shit for the actors and the crew on the musical. And then, you know, a couple of years later, he's in the starring role in one of them. He worked in Harold Prince's office. He got fired for asking too many questions, apparently. One of them being, what was the break-even on Pacific Overtures? Somebody in the office fired him. He was like, you asked too many, that's none of your fucking business. <laughs> I'm willing to bet they didn't break even on Pacific Overtures, by the way. I, I, maybe they did. I don't know. I bet that information's available. I bet you it's in the Pacific Overtures chapter, but um, I don't remember. And I didn't read it because I didn't do a Pacific Overtures episode yet. They cast one of Harold Prince's college friend's kids in the lead, a young man named Jason Weissenbach. And Harold Prince cast his own daughter. She's in the cast. But uh, that wasn't a Nepo Baby situation because that's Daisy Prince. And she went on to do things that were, well, it was a Nepo Baby thing, but she's actually good. I don't know what a Nepo Baby is necessarily. Does that mean they're, they can be good, right? Nepo Babies. Daisy Prince is very talented. She went on to direct uh, those Jason Robert Brown shows, uh, Songs for a New World, and Last Five Years. So Sondheim in his usual lazy-ass Sondheim fashion is like taking, they cast the show and then he takes nine months to write it while they're all waiting around. <laughs> the teenagers made a Merrily newsletter, which is adorable. A newsletter. Um, so, um, Sondheim, one thing I do remember from this documentary when I watched it a few years ago when it came out is that they had a party and, uh, these teenagers that were in the show and they randomly, they, they, so one of the, uh, the, I think it was Lonnie Price threw the party at his little apartment and he invited Sondheim saying they didn't think he would ever show up. And then Sondheim weirdly did show up at their young people party. This motherfucker who's in his, um. Late 50s, is hanging out with teenagers. Uh, and he said, hey, I just wrote this song. And he sat down at the piano and he played Good Thing Going. This is your song, Lonnie. Congratulations. Happy birthday. Maybe it was his birthday party. Boy, I wish I had information on this that was accurate. That's got to be that's that's got to be a big moment in your life, right? So Ron Field doesn't get it. Ron Field... Um, is uh, and the way that he talks about it, he's interviewed in this Craig Zayden book, and he's saying the most like bitchy, complainy, dramatic shit. Quote, I couldn't understand the show. I was listening with question marks coming out of my ears, my eyes, my heart, and my brain. I don't want to keep quoting him. I, I do. I'm going to keep quoting him here. This is, and he goes on and on. So, <laughs> quote, I was so perplexed. I would look at the set and it didn't seem attractive or make any sense to me. Then I would look at the people who were cast who couldn't sing, certainly couldn't dance, were clearly unattractive, and most of them had never been cast in a show before. They were amateurs. But that was the concept. And I went, oh, well, if that's the concept, let's pick the homeliest and awkwardest and put them on this funny set. And then they're gonna wear what, wigs, green wigs? And they're going to wear clothing, like from their mother's closets, and they're going to pencil in mustaches and sideburns? Well, this will be interesting. These are direct quotes. Dude, shut up. 
choreograph your dances, and shut up. <laughs> no one's asking for your input. Do your best step kick, step touch, pot de beret. And the mustaches and sideburns are not your lane. So he did his dances. He'd, uh, you know, he, <laughs> he would stage uh, things. He would choreograph songs. Harold Prince would come in and say, like, that's not what I want. That's not right. And then he'd go off and he'd restage them. And Harold Prince would come on and be like, that's not right either. And um, they weren't really, I guess, talking. So that's not good. That's, that's problematic. And problematic in the true sense of the word. It'll create problems. Not problematic in the uh, bad look sense of the word of 2023. So there's this, they, they go to dress rehearsals and like uh, the in small invited audiences are like laughing in the wrong spots. Which is always a red flag that uh, it's, it's a sign of trouble. <laughs> They're laughing at things that are supposed to be not funny. And anyway, so... They also, they've got all these period costumes and shit, these 60s bell bottoms and everything. At one point in dress rehearsals, in dress rehearsals, Harold Prince just says, okay, look, everybody, he's, uh, there's a good quote, look, we've made a mistake here and I want you to take everything off and we're going to put you all in jeans and sweatshirts. I'm sorry. The whole concept doesn't work. I'm sorry. I feel like this is a radio play this week. I feel like I'm really, I'm really embodying these characters of these people, Harold Prince and Ron Fields. And so uh, what the style of the show ends up being, which I think is kind of cool, is uh, people are wearing sweatshirts with the name of their character on it, with 70s-looking lettering. And it's like his ex-wife, uh, Frank, Frank's ex-wife, Frank's agent, Frank's lawyer. I don't know. I thought it was cool. America didn't think it was cool. The theater-going audience didn't like it. Harold Prince wanted a bare-bones set, and everybody around him said, you can't do this, you Fucking idiot. This is outrageous. You can't do this on Broadway. You can't charge people $30. If you want to do this, you got to go off Broadway. You can't have no set, you pretentious prick. <laughs> and so uh, that's not a direct quote. I'm paraphrasing. So uh, so then Harold Prince spends all this money on a set, because, but he tries to get a set that looks like it's not a set, but it is a set and it looks like shit, apparently. According to everybody, even him. By the way, this $30 business, you know, that's what it said. You know, you can't charge $30 for a, a show with no set. Wow. I, that, I, uh, that, this made me want to go on the inflation calculator on the U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics website. And I am happy to report, or unhappy to report, that $30 in October of 1981 has the same buying power of $96.96 today in 2023. Orchestra seats for The Lion King are three times that price. So we got a problem, folks. Big problem. No one can afford to live in Manhattan, and no one can afford to see a show unless they're a family out of town from Florida. And then they all they want to see is, uh, oh, they made School of Rock into a musical. That sounds fun. Remember School of Rock, kids? Like the funny guy? This is a musical of that. Let's buy some tickets. Oh, look. They're doing Mean Girls. Sweetie, you, you love Mean Girls. You can't sit with us. Anyway, you get my point. So like I said, there's bad word of mouth in the theater community, whatever the fuck that is. Um, so, um, and those people 
you know, are probably the least essential personnel working on the planet. And they're just lucky we don't live under uh, communism because they'd be sent to the camps. Because what the fuck are you here for, theater community? <laughs> I'm sorry, guys. I just don't like the theater community. Maybe it's because I'm jealous that I'm not in it. Maybe if the theater community had the same opinions of me, I would be less resentful of the theater community. That's what's going on here. I'm going to put it on me. You're fine, theater community. The cast could see the exit signs flickering while they were on stage because there were rampant walkouts. There were like hundreds of walkouts. That's weird to me as a phenomenon of the Broadway theater. Isn't that weird? Like, I can't imagine ever doing that. And I've sat through some shit. Like, okay, maybe I'd leave it intermission. I've left it intermission before. But to walk out in the middle of a show? Be, everyone needs to person up and just fucking watch that show till the end. There are worse things that can happen to a person. There were worse things than sitting in the audience when the show sucks. So they fire the poor son of a bitch playing the lead role. This poor James Weisenbach, the college uh, friend's son. And they replace him with a young man named Jim Walton, who's the guy on the original cast recording. He's got a Kermit. I think that's why I said Muppet-esque. Because uh, Jim Walton sounds to me like Kermit. Something is stirring. This asshole, Ron Field, the choreographer, he's being all tense and impatient with these poor teenagers. He's being so shitty to them. Uh, one of them in the interview said, uh, he, quote, he had an assistant who was just a horror who then gets hepatitis and we all had to get shots, unquote. Here are some more annoying quotes from Ron Field. Ron Field, the choreographer, says, quote, Look, Hal is a cerebral, intellectually gifted, architecturally brilliant person. Here, he was in trouble and not ready to admit he was wrong, especially because he had just done Evita. <laughs> so, Harold Prince is riding high because he had a hit with Evita. Great. Um, Evita was pretty good. Not the writing, necessarily. Eh, some of it. But uh, the, uh, the directing of it and the whole thing with the... Uh, Harold Prince did a... Yeah. Whoa, this is not about Evita. This is an anti-Lloyd Webber podcast. And uh, I like aspects of Evita and I like Jesus Christ Superstar. I'm repeating myself and I think it's because I told people this podcast exists and I'm going to stop doing that because I, it makes me want to take a shower because it makes me feel like uh, it, it makes me feel like a Franklin Shepherd, frankly. <clears throat> no pun intended on the frankly. That wasn't a pun. So um, here's some more Ron Field shit. Quote, my mind would no longer allow me to just be a faithful servant and I couldn't believe that they were so unfair as to not collaborate. Maybe at that point they thought I was just a fool. Maybe they didn't want to be with me. He didn't even want to talk. I'll never forget the look on his face when he said, Ron, we're not in trouble. And I thought that was unconscionable. That for all our years of friendship and the fact that I have given up my opinions and judgments and surrendered to him, he wouldn't let me in at that point. It was very hurtful and I thought very stupid. Okay, Ron, calm the fuck down. We're talking about musical comedy. You can just keep your notes to yourself or there's the door, motherfucker. No, there's no law that says you have to choreograph Merrily We Roll Along. Like the level of import he's adding to the... He says so much shit in this book, I can't even quote it all. He, he's acting like he's a fucking NSA whistleblower. Jesus Christ. 
Okay, I, he, I, a couple. He says I, he feels felt like he was among traitors. <laughs> this is the last Ronfield quote. Um, quote. So I pleaded with him to give me an appointment to see him at his office. He never called. Yeah, he doesn't want to talk to you because you're fucking exhausting, dude. So I finally went over to the theater, and when he came in, I handed him a paper I had written out with a list of suggestions. And he said, what is this? And I told him, clearly you don't want to see me contribute to this thing. And he said, Ron, we're doing fine. The show is working. And I said, it is hurting me more than anything that you don't want to discuss this with me. What have you put on that stage? And he called me self-indulgent and walked away. Totally fair, by the way. <laughs> and then something came out of my mouth. And he stopped and said, What did you say? And I said it again. And then he asked me to leave the theater. And I said, Thanks. Thanks. And scene. So, what a self-serving prick, first of all, to not tell us what he actually said. I mean, come on. You're going to tell that whole story and then say, and then I said something. And then he got mad. And so, I said it again. <laughs> I wonder if he called him like a dirty Jew or something. He probably didn't. I'd love to know what he said. But uh, they didn't tell us in this fucking book. And Ron Field is not alive anymore nor is Harold Prince. And Harold Prince was, uh, and Harold Prince and Sondheim, by the way, uh, had the, the class to not tear down Ron Field uh, in their interviews in this book, but Ron Field uh, decided it was time for a fucking Real Housewives takedown. Am I being homophobic? I don't know if Ron Field is gay or not gay. Uh, I, and I didn't do a gay voice purposely. Uh, if it sounded, oh, Jesus Christ, let's not go down this road. I, Ron Field seems like a grandiose asshole, and uh, I have no idea what his sexual preference was, and um, who cares. Uh, so he got fired after saying something that we don't know what it is, and he was replaced by Larry Fuller. The show opens to terrible reviews. The New Yorker says, Merrily was a blunder. Women's Wear Daily says George Firth's book is short on character, short on motivation, long on bitchiness. Clive Barnes, our good friend Clive Barnes, he, who uh, had a lot of really stupid bad reviews <laughs> in the past of Sondheim shows, but weirdly liked a little night music because he's a fancy boy. He wrote a good review, surprisingly, of Merrily We Roll Along. He said, quote, Whatever you may have heard about it, go and see it for yourselves. It is far too good a musical to be judged by those twin kangaroo courts of word of mouth and critical consensus. I'm not sure what else there is besides word of mouth and critical consensus. But, hey, he's right. They were both wrong in this case. So, the documentary is great because it... The, the, I guess the point of the documentary is it's like these kids are, it's their dream. One of the teenagers, by the way, is Jason Alexander of Seinfeld. We all know who he is. The guy that uh, did the role of a lifetime, George Costanza on Seinfeld, and then chose to do a KFC commercial the year after the show went off the air because he apparently needed more money. So um, 
he was he was a teenager. They, he was in it. He was a little older than them. He was like a, maybe he was twenty. He was like the oldest one in it. But the, the the documentary is about all these teenagers having this big moment where they're like, "Oh my God, we're going to be in a show by Stephen Sondheim, who's the best composer on Broadway, and it's going to be the biggest thing in our whole lives." And we're doing it. Everybody loves it. It's a great show. It was great, 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 great. And then womp womp, terrible reviews. Close after sixteen performances, and oh my God, that's the whole arc of that. The failure of the original cast. I've talked about the original cast for a long time here, and I want to talk more about the show in general. So the writing of it. So Sondheim writes it uh, with modular blocks, uh, and he says they're like furniture. I think I get this. Like, I think I understand this, but maybe I don't understand it. Let's uh, explore this together, audience. So the songs in their pure form are... You know, the, 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 the songs, the pieces of the songs are shuffled around and played all over the... But, like, the pure melodies are based on friendship of these three people, right? And then when they get distorted and disconnected in the story, the songs get distorted and disconnected. But it happens backwards. Reprises first. The Sondheim says that he... The 32-bar song of the Golden Age, he was trying to utilize that here. And even if you don't think you know what the 32-bar song is, you do, because it is probably 90% of the songs you've ever heard in your life. It has adored into popular music and rock music and everything. It's A-A-B-A and A-B-A-B. It's a song in four sections, more or less, even if each one is not eight bars and it's not adding up to 32 bars. It's uh, verse, chorus, verse, chorus, bridge, verse, chorus. It's you do a thing, you do a thing, then you have a bridge, then you do another thing. Or A-B-A-B, which every Mountain Goat song is, my favorite band, uh, is uh, ABAB, where you do a thing, and then you do another thing, and then you do the first thing again, and then you do the second thing again. It's a structural thing. And what it does is it makes listeners feel comfortable because it's the tradition. Tradition! Sondheim thought that it would make his audience feel nostalgic. Because, but because I think Sondheim may have forgotten the fact or not realized that he is the only one that has progressed past the 32-bar song. It's not nostalgia. Like, everybody still um, speaks in the language of A-B-A-B-A-A-B-A. Whereas he was going on all this uncharted territory. He's like, oh, well, this is, you know, a song that's like a period, not a period piece, but it's like it's we're going to go into past eras. And so I'll, instead of doing uh, pastiche, I overuse that word, by the way, uh, of older songs. Like, he's not going to do a rock and rolly hippie song. Like, I'm going to do a musical comedy style, but it's all going to be in 32-bar form. And that will... I'm going to abort that whole conversation because I lost track of it. And frankly, it's boring. So uh, uh, let me use Sondheim's words uh, with the, the modular furniture thing. He says, quote, you take a release from one song and you make that a verse for a different song. And then you take a chorus from a song and make that a release for another song. And then you take an accompaniment from yet a different song and make that a verse in another song. So two chairs become a couch. Two couches at an angle become a banquette. Banquette is like one of those couches that are like along the wall. If you haven't been to Home Goods lately. Uh, that's what a bank banquet is. You know what a banquet or a banquet? Probably a banquet. So uh, the release, the release, or the bridge, we would call it. Those of us who aren't weirdos would call it a bridge. The bridge in "Rich and Happy" becomes the refrain in our time. Uh, the melody of "Old Friends" becomes the accompaniment for opening doors. Like it was is the interlude for "Old Friends," and the reprises come first. 
Like old friends, we hear the old friend reprise in scene two, and then we hear the full song in scene three, because we're watching a musical backwards. It's like Memento, but it's a musical. Uh, and it's like way sadder. Not a day goes by, same thing. We get uh, the divorced wife who's heartbroken sings Not a Day Goes By. And then later they sing it at their wedding day in the past. <sighs> I don't know if you've noticed this. All of the songs with that were written by Franklin Shepard, like in the shows within the show, all the songs that Franklin Shepard writes are the same melody, repackaged. It started out like a song, good thing going. Who wants to live in New York? And then, uh, behold, the hills of tomorrow. In the original version, they cut that one out. So he didn't do music of the time, of the eras, even though he thought about it. He says something weird when he says he didn't. He says uh, because uh, one, he, music didn't change enough between some of the segments. And the example he gives, he says, between 1964 and 1968, the music didn't really change between those two segments. Hmm. I don't think Sondheim was listening to the fucking radio, but it did. It did change. And to prove this, I took a look at the Billboard charts. And yeah, 1964, we got a whole other vibe. We got I Want to Hold Your Hand and Pretty Woman. And then in 1968, uh, we're tuning in and turning on and dropping out. And we got Born to be Wild and Sunshine of Your Love and Hey Jude. I don't think Sondheim gets the counterculture, and that's fine. He doesn't have to. He's in his 30s when this was all happening. Um... Let's talk about the songs. My favorite song in the show, God Tier, Stephen Sondheim song, Franklin Shepherd Inc. It's a good one. In Finishing the Hat, I found a delightful quote. I would actually, I would kind of like to have this tattooed on my uh, body parts as well. He says, quote, I seem to have a penchant for nervous breakdowns. Yeah. Me too, Sondheim. Especially your songs about them. These are my favorites of the Sondheim songs. Rose's Turn, Getting Married Today, Epiphany, and Franklin Shepard Inc. He's really, really good at this. And um, when I heard it as a preteen, I thought it would be a fun challenge to learn it and, you know, memorize it because it's a pattery song. Mutter, 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 yes, Jerome, mutter, no, Jerome, mutter, 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 that's the lawyer, Jerome, mutter, mutter, mutter. I, I kind of have the cadence of Lonnie Price memorized, uh, which is, you know. Yeah. Then at West Coast Ensemble, I saw Richard do it. Uh, Richard, who I ended up working with. And, um, you know, showstopper. Anytime anyone does this song, it's a showstopper. It's because Charlie fucking rocks and the song fucking rocks. It's hard to fuck this song up. It's really good. Which is not to say Richard Israel wasn't amazing at it. Uh, but it is hard to fuck it up. But his version of it was really good. And it's the one I always think of. Also, it's weird to know Richard personally because I think that I have conflated him with Charlie Kringus because he is Charlie Kringus in my mind. Close second for the best song in Merrily We Roll Along is Opening Doors, which is really more of a sequence. And um, interestingly enough, it's one of two of the most autobiographical songs he's ever written. A lot of people try to foist this on him and say, oh, are you... Are you Sweeney? Are you Bobby and company? And it's like, there, he says there's like parts of him in it, but like the, the, the actual like direct autobiographical songs he's ever written are Finishing the Hat and Opening Doors. And this one, 
Of course, you know, the hummable thing is addressed here. We got, uh, there's not a tune you can hum. There's not a tune that goes bum, 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 da dum. And then he's uh, just right up playing old mellow. Dee, 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 Which, uh, for the eagle-eared fans, that's not a term. He is humming some enchanted evening, but then the second time he hums it, he hums it wrong, which is Sondheim driving his point home that uh, even the people that say that songs uh, should be hummable are the ones that are humming them wrong. Don't say that songs are hummable. How clear do I need to make this? Why do I need to keep saying this to you? Okay. Uh, opening doors. So he says, quote, although the details may vary, that song describes what the struggle was like for me and my generation of Broadway songwriters. I'm sure it must often have seemed frustrating at the time, but in retrospect, it strikes me as the most exhilarating period of my life. And this is a common sentiment, I think. Uh, a lot of people talk about this uh, in uh, interviews, and this is a lot of like stories about success, right? That the struggling years were the best, and you make it to the top, and then all you want to do is be back with... Uh, Back with Mary and Charlie, starting out. Our time makes me choked up. I don't always have the energy to listen to the song Our Time. And like I said, um, I have a very personal connection to this show. So, um, the title song... Merrily we roll along. Merrily we bound da do da da. I'm touching a dream. I like it, but some of the lyrics are puzzling to me. The <laughs> and why like traveling's the fun and waking up the countryside. Like what does that mean? And it's like very like general and stilted. And uh, sometimes doesn't have much to say about it in finishing the hat or elsewhere, unless I'm missing something. I'm not, uh, you know, an archivist, a research person. <laughs> I'm reading two sources here, plus Wikipedia. So uh, if anybody knows why that kind of shit, like traveling's the fun and waking up the countryside or in that song, uh, please uh, give us a call at 1-800-Sondheim-On-Adderall. 1981 uh, had some songs that were cut in later versions, uh, which I, m I miss some of them. Um, I don't miss Hills of Tomorrow, the graduation song, and I do think it's good that they didn't do that whole uh, gimmick with the graduation. I do think it does ruin the whole, f the, the fact that the, 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 I, it, there's no third Frank song that has that melody, and it would be cool if there was three. Just because it's nice to do things in threes. I think it's good uh, not to, yeah. Circle, not to circle back to the beginning at the ending is really brutal, but I think it's good. I like the song Rich and Happy. It's replaced with That Frank. I miss it. I miss Rich and Happy. Sondheim says that Rich and Happy was like uh, meant to be a kid's idea of a Hollywood party, which is why it works for the teenage cast. And that's funny because, um, okay, I think maybe now it's time to talk about uh, the my personal experience um, with Merrily We Roll Along, being in it with my friends in the early 2000s. So in 2004, um, my dear friend from high school, I was a year out of high school. He started a theater company, and the first show he wanted to put on was Merrily We Roll Along. And um, that suited me just fine because I loved it. It was my favorite musical then and now. And so um, he made me audition, and I got the part, and <clears throat> it was all... Just, we were all kids. We were all <sighs> aged 
let's say, you know, 16 through 20, uh, just like the original cast. And um, it was a big, uh, it was a big moment in my life doing this thing. And I'm not, I don't want to sit here like uh, fucking Norma Desmond and uh, say that it's all been shit since then. <laughs> it hasn't. Uh, but, uh, it's, uh, it's one of those things I look back on as like, ah, youth. Ah, youth. And so, yeah, it was a big, and I was stoned and drunk most of the days of my life in 2004. I got sober in 2007, but when we did the show, I was, um, I was just starting to have a problem and I didn't really live anywhere. I was, uh, couch surfing. But, uh, you know, I was, you know, sometimes I would stay at my dad's place downtown. Sometimes I'd play with, stay at my mom's place in Sierra Madre. Sometimes I would stay with friends. But I kind of lived out of a backpack, and I was high all the time, and I worked at Jamba Juice. I quit Jamba Juice. I no-showed in order to go to rehearsal for Merrily. We roll along, believe it or not. And uh, my friend Eric, who was directing it, said, Hey, man, um, you got to not be drunk or stoned <laughs> during the rehearsal and performance process of us doing this and I agreed to that and then of course did not hold myself to it I the first time I got stoned before rehearsal I was like yeah this is fine this is going I seem to be doing fine and then I actually got less notes than I usually got and I was like I used that as proof like hey I'm better when I'm stoned like these people that say they drive better when they're stoned so anyway so we did the show, um, there was all kinds of, you know, uh, young people, teenage drama during that show with everybody, and um, yeah, it, 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 a lot going on. Heady time, suffice to say, without getting into the weeds on that. And then, um, you know, two years later, when the drinking had gotten a little more alarming for me, and uh, I'd sort of lost touch with some of those people, I found myself uh, running from my problems in LA and going to New York City and staying with friends in Brooklyn, one of whom was in this show. And the first night I was there, we got very drunk, and she said, let's watch the DVD of that show we did. Merrily we roll along. I was like, yeah, let's do that. There were a couple people sitting there in the living room uh, that had to endure this. There's nothing worse, by the way, than watching a filmed version of somebody else's show, of any show, really, unless you got a three-camera shoot going on. But if you're watching, like, a back-of-the-theater filmed version of a show where you can't fucking hear anything or see anything, it sucks. So, uh, whatever. So we watched this, and there was all, we were talking during, hey, remember this, remember that, hey, 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 ha, 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 ha. Remember I learned what Facebook was while we were watching that because she showed it to me, like, hey, look, all these people, they're on Facebook. And I was like, what's that? And they're like, you can't be in it because you don't go to college. And I was like, that sucks. Um, and then we got to the last scene. We got to our time and, uh, specifically to my little monologue about, uh, after this moment, the moment the three of us are having here, nothing is ever going to be the same. Uh, we can do anything. We can be anything. Uh, I kind of, uh, started crying. I was, you know, drunk. Um, I, I remember the people I was with found, uh, found it annoying, or at least it seemed to them, or they like didn't like it, or they were like, Chris, come on, man. And so I, I went into the library and sort of cried it out. And this was not, um, you know, the Chris Kerrigan of today, who uh, cries every time he hears uh, the song Sunday from Sunday the Park of George. Like, I, I did not cry easily in those days. And uh, boy, oh boy watching this 
and I've done a lot of thinking about why that happened, or like why I had such an emotional reaction to that. And I'm going to talk about that a little bit later because I have gotten way off track talking about these songs in Merrily Roll Along. But anyway, so yeah, Our Time is a tough song for me. And I love uh, the way that Jim Walton sounds and Lonnie Price sounds singing that song in the original cast recording. And the people that said they can't sing can go fuck themselves. What about their voices communicates to you that these people can't sing? And Morrison too. Like, okay, they don't sound general and they don't sound like they've had voice lessons. But I went on a long tirade about this and I don't remember what episode it was and I don't want to remember what episode it was and I don't care. But this is uh, when people say like, oh, if only, the, oh, I love Bob Dylan songs. If only he could sing. That doesn't mean anything. That just means if only he sang like other people. If somebody's tone deaf, that's one thing. If somebody is on the pitch, but their voice... God, it makes me so mad. Anyway. Our Time is a beautiful song. The whole reason that I got uh, on this uh, unhinged memory, memory lane thing was because we were talking about the fact that Rich and Happy is the idea, <laughs> young people's idea of the Hollywood party. And that's funny because when we were, when Eric, the director, was talking to me about it, he was saying like he wants it to be like Boogie Nights, this first scene with the party, with the pool. And he was like, you know, it's going to be like, you know, that scene in Boogie Nights at the pool party where there's like, there's like some of the younger younger guys are swimming with the girls, but then there's like the suits. I'm like, they're not going to be swimming. You reconstructed it that way. And Boogie Nights, I, th I think, again, like that was a very 19-year-old uh, uh, concept of what a, an adult party would be like. Maybe, I listen, maybe there are adults that have Boogie Nights parties and uh, I just wasn't invited to them. <laughs> uh, I'd go to one. As long as I don't have to do any coke or uh, have any, uh, yeah. So um, at the end of that, Frank, this is interesting. Uh, he has, uh, he's the kind of a man could be president, that Frank. Sondheim said this was, uh, he consciously said this to connect it to the Reagan era, which he says is, quote, one built on expedience disguised as affability, unquote. That's kind of satisfying. Sondheim, who's largely apolitical, to say something like that. I liked it. Another thing that's cut from the original version is the middle part on It's a Hit. They sh shorten that. And that's got one of my favorite sections where Charlie says, Success is like failure. It's how you perceive it. It's what you do with it, not how you achieve it. And I can't believe it's a hit. You don't get that in uh, later versions. That's good. Uh, that's good. That's in my head, by the way. I'm not reading that off of... Uh, I want you guys... To, I want a round of applause. Could you... If, you, if people listening at home, can you please uh, just... Or I want a digital pat on the back of some kind for uh, knowing those lyrics without reading them. Um, so 1995, they also, uh, sorry, 1985, they added uh, some songs like Growing Up. Very interesting. So I'm grateful that they added that because it gives Frank kind of a solo where he doesn't really have one. Uh, Not A Day Goes By, Frank sings that on the album. I guess that was his song in the original. But so Growing Up gives him a solo in the first act and Growing Up is complicated. That's well, yeah, growing up is complicated. The song Growing Up is complicated, and it's like Marry Me a Little in that it's someone lying to themselves, but it's not easy to spot for an audience, maybe, unless maybe you are someone who has told a similar lie. Or maybe it's even harder to spot if you're someone who's told similar lies. And this is somebody justifying 
being really selfish and prostituting themselves and saying that it's just growing up. And it's intended to make us like Frank more, and I guess it does. Um, it offloads some of his culpability onto Gussie, because then Gussie comes on and sings a verse of it, and she's like a seductress. It's kind of fucked up. They also added the blob, which is okay, but it's kind of similar to the first song. Uh, or the first, you know, yeah, that Frank, you know, that whole thing with those people that are fancy at the party. And, you know, it's like we got that already. Doesn't, don't need to do that again 20 years earlier. I could be wrong. People love the song Not A Day Goes By. I think it's because it's one of the few Sondheim, like, general insertable songs. And they could put it in their cabarets about the time that they got dumped when they were 20 years old. <laughs> Not a day goes by. Uh, and then likewise with Good Thing Going. Good Thing Going uh, is intended to be a general song because it's written by the people in the show, with the show within the show. Frank Sinatra did a version of it. And then in the revision, it's like uh, they used that. It's like very meta because they're like, you just heard Frank Sinatra singing Good Thing Going by Franklin Shepard and Charles Gringis. When in actuality, it was because Frank Sinatra did a version of it on an album in the early 80s and blah, blah, blah. Uh, it's impossible not to cry at Not A Day Goes By reprise if you're watching it live. If the Mary is good, that is. Like, if you get a good Mary, it's real hard not to cry during Not A Day Goes By reprise. We had a pretty good Mary when we did it. And the boy, the West Coast Ensemble Mary, I don't know her name, and I don't know what she's up to now, but she was amazing. She was Mary, uh, Amy in company at that same theater, like uh, maybe a year prior, and uh, she was really good. She killed us. She killed me, killed my, my family. She killed me and my family. Prepare to die. Uh, Bobby and Jackie and Jack is a great pastiche song. <laughs> Thankfully, one of the few pastiche songs in this, not like Follies, which is populated with many pastiche songs. I don't like the Sondheim pastiche songs for our new listeners. Uh, if you give a shit what I think about anything. Uh, kudos to that West End version. Like I said, they did a really good job with that. They had all kinds of props and made it a lot of bells and whistles with it. Um, this song reminds me of, uh, you ever seen Inside Lewin Davis? I guess maybe because it's also about Kennedy, but that Please Mr. Kennedy song. It seems like maybe there was a market in the early 60s for kooky uh, novelty songs, political songs. Like, Please, Mr. Kennedy and Bobby and Jackie and Jack, both of which are pretend novelty songs from the 60s that were written in modern times. Now You Know is a great song, but also a complicated one. And it's spooky. It's sung not only by his true friends trying to make him feel better about his divorce with their good intentions about him moving on, but it's like also sung by his fake friends with their glossy bullshit about how he should just get on a cruise and do cool shit and forget his ex and forget about his adultery and forget about his son, Frankie. So yeah. Merrily we roll along, folks. One of the best. The best. I've been trying to figure out why I like the show so much, why it's my favorite. And looking back, I mean, it moves me now even more than it did then, and for obvious reasons, because I am now in scene one of Merrily We Roll Along, as opposed to the finale of Merrily We Roll Along. I turned 40 this year, and Frank was 40 in the fucking party, and that's obviously depressing, but it's also, like, makes, uh, makes you think. It makes you turn or stop and think. And... I think the reason that uh, I think the uh, merrily roll along being so important to me in my life 
has maybe something to do with the reason that I've always kind of been unambitious uh, and that I've always been a Charlie and not a Frank. I, I really identify with Charlie in this. Nobody will ever let me play Charlie. I feel like I'm not nebbish enough. Maybe if I like gain a lot of weight, they'll be like, okay, you can play Charlie now. It'll be a fresh take on Charlie. A six foot five, 300 pound <laughs> gargantuan. Nah, nah, I don't think it works, folks. I don't think it works, guys. Uh, next, next. The idea of, uh, I mean, it's about selling out, but it's also like the idea of losing friends and the idea of um, swimming against the current, trying to stay friends with people. And if you've, if you've ever done a show, you know, it, everybody, when you're young especially, like when you're young and you do a show, you get show crushes and you build these friendships that feel like lifelong friendships, and then you usually never call the people after the show closes. And when I did Merrily We Roll Along, when I was 20 years old in 2004, I thought that I would be friends with all these people for the rest of my life. And, you know, I lost touch with most of them and everyone went in different directions. Of course they did, right? Life is life. Some people pursued a career in show business. Some people, that was like the end for them. Like they studied acting in high school and then maybe college and they did this and then they, they're like, okay, I'm good. Let me uh, just become suburban now. I'm not, and I, I think that may be the way to go, honestly, in life. I think that may be the move to uh, find the weird kids in the drama program and do shows with them and, you know, uh, enrich your life and then go do something else. You know, one of the people that was in this show is now a movie star, kind of. And I'm not going to get into who, who this person is because I feel like, you know, on Facebook, like a lot of people kind of co-opt this person's fame who were friends when with him when he was younger and they, uh, they kind of glom onto him in a parasitical way where they're like, oh, so proud of my friend from high school. <laughs> yes, that's right. He's my friend from high school. And I, you know, whatever. So, uh, and you know, one of these people... Uh, one of the people in this show is now completely destroyed and has completely given up. And it was a very close friend of mine. And uh, this show was kind of the last thing that this guy did. And since then, there have been issues with mental illness and with alcoholism. And now um, he's kind of, you know, already dead, even though he's still alive. And I get emotional about it. I don't think I could frankly handle sitting through the fucking DVD of this show again, and I don't own it. I'm sure I did at some point. I don't know where, where it went, but, you know. It's it's a really special show. Merrily we roll along. This is, okay, this is getting a little, uh, this is getting a little Mark Maroney here. Suffice to say, um, I've said that like three times in this episode. I'm sorry. Uh, I love Merrily We Roll Along Forever. I don't think there's ever going to be a musical that will eclipse it. In my mind. 
on one level, I'd like to see it done more, and then on another level, I feel like it's mine, and so I would like everyone to stay the fuck away from it. So, uh, <laughs> that's not true. I do want to see it done more. I want more people to see it. I'm enjoying revisiting all these shows with my girlfriend, Shailene, because I'm getting to see it through the eyes of somebody that is seeing them for the first time. And she really liked this one. And I think, like I said, I think for non-theater people, I think this is a good one for them to uh, maybe show, be, be shown how the possibility of musical theater. Because you could not maybe do this with a straight play. I wonder if the Linklater movie will change its place. And I wonder if it'll do well, if it'll be any good. I don't know. I hope so, but I also kind of hope it doesn't. It's because right now it's like this thing hanging out there. This merrily roll along. Sondheim thought it would be moving in the original that the teenagers would become themselves at the end. That they'd be kids in fake mustaches playing grown-ups, and then at the end, they would just be them. They would be kids. And I wonder if maybe that was a strength in our little production in La Cunada, <laughs> in a little church in La Cunada, Flint Ridge, in the early 2000s. I think maybe uh, that would, uh, you know, maybe the first act was a little tiresome and a little precocious with these kids on their hind legs, and then maybe at the end uh, we uh, we got them at the end. So, folks, this is going to conclude our episode of Merrily We Roll Along. I hope you enjoyed it. Uh, I hope I wasn't too cringy about the my personal stuff in this. Tune in next week. We're going to talk about a big landmark thing <laughs> called uh, Sunday in the Park with George, which I really wanted to break the chronology and do an episode on this earlier because right after the fucking second episode maybe even the first I saw it at the Pasadena Playhouse and it was like fresh in my mind and if you don't think that I uh, was weeping at the end of the first and second acts you'd be wrong because I was so uh, tune in next week or maybe even in two weeks we'll see um, thank you so much for listening we like to end every episode here of Sondheim on Adderall with a quote uh, from a Sondheim lyric that has something to do with saying goodbye, and uh, this is no exception, folks. Here we go. Uh, let me find one real quick. Give me just a moment here. Got a couple different sources on this. And I'm running low. I'm not going to lie to you. I'm running low on these. I don't know how uh, long this can go on. This is unsustainable. Uh, this one's okay. This is a stretch, but uh, let's try it. Uh, th uh, this was just a moment on the internet. Our moments blathering and tiresome and long. Leave the podcast. Just be glad for the podcast that we had. Okay, that's enough. Thanks for listening, everybody. Sondheim on Adderall, signing off, because, you know, it's us, old friends, and what could possibly be left to discuss, old friends. Hey, two for one today. You're welcome. Goodbye, everybody. <laughs> <laughs>